case you didn't read it, and join me in silencing my cell phone. I want to hear the call of the Lord, not the call from AT&T or Verizon. Hope we're all doing well tonight, beginning of the week. Let's um, start with a word of prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for this time that you've brought us together here to learn about individuals in your word that we can look at and we can discover that by using their examples, we can draw closer to you, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes by not repeating their mistakes. And so, Father, we ask you to pour your spirit upon here tonight. Pour your spirit upon the teaching of your word, that we hear your words, not the word of a man. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. One of my uncles on my mother's side is a blinded veteran from World War II. At the age of 19, in 1944, he had been a part of Patton's Third Army in the counterattack in the Ardennes Hills in Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge. And toward the end, he was, uh, well, a German 88 millimeter shell exploded near him and basically took his eyesight. So from 19, and he's still alive to this day, he has been completely blind. Spiritually, he was raised in a godly family. Uh, my grandparents were uh, very much believers in the Bible. But he was still angry with God because at some point during his recovery, after he got back to the States, someone had told him that the reason he was blinded was because he wanted to pursue a career in the sciences and not go into the mission field like his parents had wanted him to. Well, as a result, after his marriage, he went on a spiritual quest to find his true God. Because for him, a God who's that vindictive wasn't worth it. And his wife was also very interested in, in spiritual things. So they had this little crazy little tour throughout the L.A. area, visiting fortune tellers and Eastern mystics and going to different seances. Well, my uncle, being blind, as many of you may know, when you lose use of one of your senses, a lot of times the others are compensated. They get more, more acute and are compensated for it. And when he went to several seances, he discovered that a lot of these guys were just fakes. He could hear machinery in the background. He could hear people walking quietly around that a person who was focused on their vision wouldn't notice. And he also noticed this, uh, the same old thing happening over and over again. In particular, one so-called spirit would always come around and announce himself as, I'm King Solomon, and then proceed to quote out of the book of Proverbs. At the school I teach at, there's a Buddhist service group that rents our facility every Sunday morning. And once a year, this group gets, to, gets our staff together, they, they feed us a lunch and to show how much they appreciate the use of our classrooms. And they always pass out this little book written by the founder of their order, uh, someone who basically refers to herself as the master. And even though I generally chuck this thing into the trash, occasionally I'll glance through it to see if anything has changed. And sure enough, lots of little sayings and lots of little quotes from, well, you probably guessed it, Book of Proverbs. 
I bring these things up simply to make note that even the unsaved world has great respect and reverence for a gentleman we call Solomon, son of David, the last ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel, and with good reason. If we look through several passages in 1 Kings and in 1 Chronicles and so forth, we find that the Bible tells us that the wisdom of Solomon was renowned. It was known throughout all the known world at that time. 1 Kings 4.34, you don't have to turn there, as a good example, all men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. If we move further into 1 Kings 10, it tells us the story of the Queen of Sheba who had heard of the fame of Solomon and tested him with lots of difficult questions. We further read toward the end of that chapter, King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Note that last few words there. God put it in his heart. Solomon's often casted as a poster child for those who encourage other people to seek wisdom. Ah, look at the wisdom of Solomon. And such as these medians of my uncle's experience, or even the master, you look for wisdom, but what they almost always neglect is the source of that great wisdom. And what's interesting that one of the most probably off-quote sayings of Solomon that we are all familiar with, they ignore. And that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Yet as we look tonight at the life of Solomon, actually you find a man who's not really that much on a pedestal. Well, he was a king, all right, and very wealthy and very wise, but he was a man. He's somebody all of us in this room can relate to. He recognized his own strength, his own weaknesses, and he knew that God had a plan for him, just like everyone in this room knows that God has a plan for us individually. And yet, with all this knowledge, he still acted quite foolishly. In fact, I kind of look at him as a wise fool. It seems like a contradiction, but it really isn't. Because he himself applies that label to himself, as we're going to see later tonight. And also with Solomon, we can actually look at the scriptures and see from Solomon's point of view his own slide into sin. And his viewpoint on it, that's something we don't see too often in scriptures. We actually get to hear both sides of the story. Let's look a little bit about Solomon himself, okay? Well, how can we relate to this man? Well, first off, Solomon was born into a very dysfunctional family. Dysfunctional with a capital D. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba. We know that David fell into adultery. He was at the wrong place where he shouldn't have been, looking at things he shouldn't have been looking at, and ended up having a one-night stand with some other guy's wife. And then she got pregnant as a result, and in order to cover the sin up, David basically had Uriah, the husband, killed. We know about this. We've heard it before in these studies, and we've heard it probably many times in the past. David did confess this sin. He was, he was basically uh, approached by Nathan the prophet and was called on the carpet. He confessed it. He realized he had acted wrongly, but there were consequences to this sin. And as we see, Solomon himself was one of the consequences that came along. The first child that was conceived in the adultery 
that child died soon after birth. But Solomon was then born soon after that. Okay, he was conceived after the first child's death. And being husband and wife, God now blessed this child. If we look in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 24 through 25. We look and see here that the Lord now loved him, that is, this new child. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, Jedidiah means loved by the Lord, okay? Confirming that Solomon had a special place in God's heart and had a special plan. And the name that David gave him, Solomon, by the way, means God is his peace. And this was perhaps a wish by Daddy David that the rest of what Nathan had told him about the consequences of his sin might not come to pass. And those consequences we find again Second Samuel 12, 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now, this is not something anyone wants to have happen, but God's forgiveness didn't mean that David dodged those consequences. From this point on, as we go to, to the end of the book of 2 Samuel, David's family life looks like it was pulled right out of a script for a soap opera. First off, David's firstborn son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And then David's, for some reason, seems incapable of dealing with the situation. And it's a good possibility he felt like, well, if I punish this guy for what he did, I'll look like a hypocrite because I basically committed the same sin. But whatever, his next son, Absalom, who was the full brother of Tamar, decides... This is not going to work. He waits a couple of years, and then Amnon is killed. And now, Absalom happens to be next in line to the kingship, according to tradition. He is now the oldest surviving son. And there is evidence in the Bible that Absalom may have engineered the whole scene in the first place in order to be placed in that position. Interesting how that works. Four years after Amnon's murder, Absalom decides he's tired of waiting for the kingship, and he starts a rebellion. And David flees. Seems like since his sin, David's unable to deal with any of these major issues. And he just takes most of his family. He gets out of Jerusalem, taking Solomon with him. Okay? Now, let's look at, if you look at 2 Samuel 15 through 18, we don't have time to go into it in detail, but we know that there's very graphic descriptions of what was happening to the royal party as they were fleeing out of Jerusalem. And yes, Solomon... Being a young lad at that point in time, maybe four to five years old, we're not sure, he probably experienced exactly what his dad was. Now, think of this from the viewpoint of a four or five-year-old. What am I going to eat? What are we going to have to eat? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And maybe the situation was so desperate it crept into his little five-year-old mind. Am I going to be alive tomorrow? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us what Solomon was thinking, but you can imagine that this was not the most pleasant of times. Think about what things that we went through as children. This is much worse than hopefully anybody went through, having your life in danger. But think about how this may have affected him later on. Because one thing we also know is God had his hand on that whole situation. And perhaps Solomon knew it. After all, he was special. God did choose him. Maybe Solomon knew 
Lord's got his hand on me. I am loved by God. He's back to his name. He was there. And as we know, the rebellion was crushed. Absalom was killed. And David and his family returned to Jerusalem. But a shadow now was lying over David's family. The shadow of that one sin, that one moment of losing control, was now affecting the rest of his reign. So far, now, David has lost three sons as a result of his adultery. Well, despite all this, we know. We've seen it. It's in Scripture. It's clear that God had a plan, great plan in mind for Solomon. And it was actually predicted ahead of time. If we go back to, or go actually go forward to First Chronicles, we find that the Lord did tell David that his son was going to build a temple. Okay? David wanted to build a temple. He said, hey, here I am living in this huge palace. This is a very vague paraphrase. I'm living in this great palace, and the Lord's living in a tent. There's, there's something wrong with that. And so he wanted to build the temple. But God said through Nathan, no, no, you're too violent. You're a man of war. Your son's going to do it. And in fact, second, or First Chronicles 22, 9, 9 and 10 Behold, the son shall be born to you who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So clearly, God saying, Solomon's going to be the next king. You're dead, David. It's going to be done to Solomon. Okay? Somewhere down the line, we find that David had promised Bathsheba. Yeah, Solomon, your son, is going to be king. Okay? But there's a problem. At least in man's eyes, there was a problem. David had one more son that was still older than Solomon. And again, tradition stated, hey, that older son is the one that should be king. And, more importantly, there were those who chose to ignore David's wishes and, more importantly, the will of God. We move into 1 Kings. We find now David as an old man, deathly ill. He can't even maintain his body temperature. It's so bad that he has to stay covered up at all times. In fact, they brought along a new concubine, a girl by the name of Abishag, who would basically lie with him just to keep him warm. No, they didn't have sex never had relations of that sort. She was basically a nursemaid, but because she was a royal concubine, she had the right to basically sleep with the king. This son I referred to, a fellow by the name of Adonijah. He was a very ambitious fellow. He kind of took after his brother Absalom. In fact, in many ways, you see David's personality going through it. Basically, a very strong person, a very forward person, someone who wants to do things his way and do it right now. He had his eyes on the throne. And a lot of David's followers, especially within his government, were looking at Solomon, looking at Adonijah, and saying, you know, Solomon's not that good of a choice. You know, the king is really sick. He's not really going to be able to do much. Why don't we go ahead and let's get Adonijah on the throne. That way David can't do anything about it. We'll proclaim him king, and then we can just get Solomon out of the way, and we can go, we can go someplace else. And not worry about it. And some of the, what was sad was some of the people who supported this notion had been with David for years, 
Joab was his military commander, had always very loyal to David. But again, his choice was, no, that's not Solomon. And one of, the, um, one of the priests who had been with David since David was fleeing from Saul at the very beginning of, of, of uh, or in the middle of 1 Samuel, when Saul was after him for his life, one of the priests who survived a massacre joined David and was with him every step of the way. A fellow by the name of Abiathar. He also thought, no, obviously Solomon's not it. And this man should have known better. He was a priest. He should have known God had his finger on Solomon. That's who it was supposed to be. Now, before we go further, let's kind of ask ourselves for a minute, what was wrong with Solomon, at least from the human point of view? I mean, we know he's wise and so forth, but at this point in his life, what was the issue? Well, we can get a few hints out of the Bible. In uh, 1 Chronicles 22, before that passage we just read, David himself comments, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. Okay? Um, we could even stretch a point a little bit and put forward the notion that Solomon was something of a mama's boy. Well, and here's why. Adonijah, who had attempted to take the kingdom from Solomon, was shown mercy by the new monarch. Basically, he pled for mercy. Solomon said, okay, no problem. Just stay out of my sight, but I won't kill you. And he had every right to. And Adonijah probably said, this guy's a fool. If I were in his shoes and someone tried to take the throne from me, he'd be dead, and he's letting me live. It's like, hmm, maybe I can get a second chance at this. And he shows up to Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. She comes back on the scene. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Kings 2. Bible's like mine. It's on page 449, but it probably isn't. Okay. 1 Kings 2 verses, or starting on verse 13. This is where kind of it looks like that people thought of Solomon as a mama's boy because the first person to try to, the first person Adonijah approaches is Bathsheba. And this is what he says. He says, starting in verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, Do you come peaceful, peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. Moreover, she said, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, Say it. Verse 15. Then he said, You know that the kingdom was mine. This guy obviously didn't have much remorse about what happened. It's like, he's really angry about it. And all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Interesting statement. You thinking it should be yours, but okay, the Lord gave it to him. Now I ask one petition for you. Do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. 17. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you that he may give me Abishag the Shulamite as wife. Notice it says, he's not going to deny you. Apparently, Solomon had this reputation. If mommy asked something, mommy got it. Okay? That's the only way you can explain this. And this Abishag, remember, she was the one who was the nursemaid for David in his declining years, in his last years, in fact. Um, and it looks like Adonijah 
clearly thought that anyone foolish enough to let a pretender to the throne live would probably be foolish enough to hand over a royal concubine, which would give Adonijah another claim to the throne. And it was clear that he felt that Solomon was so tied to his mother's apron strings that he would not say no to her over even what would really be a preposterous request. I mean, this would be political suicide for Solomon, but this guy thought so lowly of his brother that he figured he'll do it because his mommy's asking him. And really, to be honest, you have to question, why did Bathsheba go along with this anyway? Was it because Adonijah looked like David and she thought, man, you know, I can't say no to this guy? We don't know. But she was also confident. Solomon, he's going to do this. He'll accede to this request. Not a problem. Jumping to first... 19, it looks like that these assumptions are valid. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand, a place of honor. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. The king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. Obviously, mommy ruled here. Solomon held his mother in very high regard. So, verse 21, Bathsheba proceeds with her request. So she said, let Abishag the Shumamite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. Well, at this point, Solomon breaks the mold. And it probably was a shocker to everyone involved, especially Bathsheba. Verse 22, King Solomon answered and said to his mother, now, why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives who has confirmed me and set me on the throat of David my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. Boy, that plan backfired. I should have just kept his mouth shut. This is not the words of a mama's boy. Sorry, guys. Solomon clearly showed hidden strength that nobody suspected he had, and it startled everyone involved in this scene. At the same token... Solomon was still quite aware of his inexperience. If he had spent a lot of time with his mother in David's harem, he probably didn't see a lot of the world. He didn't get out as much as his older brothers had, who got you know, very muscular and strong and looked like kingly material. And his father felt the same as we saw. He said, my son is young and inexperienced. And so when he was dying, David gave Solomon a ton of advice, and it looked like at this point that Solomon was following it. Solomon got a golden opportunity that I think all of us wish we could have. He goes to a place called Gibeon where he's making sacrifices to the Lord. Let's jump ahead to 1 Kings 3, 5 through 14. And boy, I wish this would happen to me. I think everyone in this room would wish it would happen to you. Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. God said, ask, what shall I give you? Imagine the Lord himself coming to you in a dream saying, ask, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And here's Solomon. You have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because 
he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness to him. You have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. He identifies his own weaknesses. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's a man. I can't do it on my own, God. I need your help. That's a man. A young man speaking in his own weakness. Not like the others that were saying, I can do this, I'm ready for it. This is what God was looking for. Verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, or have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See... I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be not anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. What a gift. What a request. And it, it was so. God gave Solomon the gift of wisdom for a time, and for a time he used that wisdom to better his country. We've already talked about people coming to ask questions of, of Solomon. We have these problems. How can we deal with it? There's several stories we could go through. We don't have the time. But it's amazing. And this is what we look at. And in addition... He had the honor to build the temple. David wanted to build that temple. God said, no, your son Solomon will do it. So Solomon built the temple to God that David had planned and provided, presided over its awesome dedication. I mean, we've read about it before, how the smoke filled, the presence of the Lord filled the inside, and the priests couldn't do their jobs because of the presence there. And Solomon was there. He saw it. He talked to God. He saw the presence of the Lord in that temple. Okay. What happened? One would think that Solomon would cherish this wonderful relationship with God. And not everyone has a chance to get to see God in a dream and be offered carte blanche on what we really want. Something happened. And often at times it happens to the best Christians. You've heard it before where a famous pastor, suddenly he's, he's got a blooming ministry, everything's going great, and then suddenly... He crashes down. And what do people remember him for? They don't remember for the great ministry he had. They remember him as, oh, he hung out with prostitutes, or he had an affair, or he did this, or he did that. Always the negative. That was his legacy. Here Solomon was telling God the legacy of his father. Upright man. Yeah, he stumbled once, but he left behind a positive legacy. Well, 
Actually, we know what happened. Turn to 1 Kings 11. Even when the most devoted man of God gets his eyes off the Lord and starts looking at the worldly things, Solomon fell into the same trap. He took his walk for the Lord for granted. Verse 1 of chapter 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, excuse me, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away your hearts after other gods. Interesting verse or statement here. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. I don't know how he could stand it. 700 of them. Okay. Princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, and was as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And like He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to foreign gods. Solomon's sin was all the greater because of the special privileges he had enjoyed. God had singled Solomon out by appearing to him twice. Solomon lacked neither proof nor evidence of God's love. It's not like a lot of times now, we, you know, we get we have a uh, experience, a conversion experience, and you feel that rush, and maybe it was just emotion, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, but sometimes you're not sure. Solomon didn't have that issue. He knew God was there. He had abundantly tasted God's love by being chosen for the kingship, contrary to custom. He was given a special and personal name from God, Jedediah. Remember, it meant loved by God. And he received all these gifts from God that he didn't ask for. He had seen that the power of God was there when he was put on the throne. He saw it when his father was saved from what seemed like certain rebellion. He was granted unchallenged power and prestigious king, and he was given success in his endeavors beyond all expectations. This should have created in Solomon a lifelong love and devotion of the deepest kind for God. But that one phrase said it all. Instead of clinging to his wives, he should have been clinging to the Lord. And he didn't. Consider a before and after scenario. Turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 was a song, was a song written by Solomon. Let's read these words. 
starting in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak of their enemies in the gate. Those of us who are fathers can attest to this. And I'll read to you, and now you don't have to turn to the here, but Proverbs 2, 1 through 9. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. Great words. That was before. Turn now to Ecclesiastes 1. Most people are thinking we were going to probably end up there. And we have. Consider those two passages we just read. And understand, they are written by the same person who, starting on verse 12, says these words. Ecclesiastes 1, starting on verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task, notice the use of words here, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity, grasping for the wind. Wow. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. I commune with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this was also grasping for the wind. For in wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's total opposite of what he said in Proverbs 2. But note that I have created greatness. I have done that. Who gave him his gifts? The Lord did. It wasn't Solomon. This is a good indicator of what's going on in his brain. He's forgotten where it came from. We go on into chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. We'll just kind of skim through it. Some of the things he did to fulfill himself. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this was also vanity. I like the way the New Americans or New International says it. It was meaningless. I said of laughter, of madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly that I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. 
I mean, what's going on here? This is a man without the Lord. But as we have said before, he knew the Lord. He had a personal relationship. He goes through. It, the refrain comes over and over. All was vanity. Go down to verse 14 in chapter chapter 2. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. Here he's attaching to himself that term, wise fool. Started that out earlier. And so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. Then why then am I more wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. Jump down to verse 19, or verse 18 rather. I hated all my labor which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool. Yet he shall rule over all my labor which I toiled. This is also vanity. Again and again, it's meaningless. This is depressing. A man who was visited by God, who was given a personal gift by the Lord himself, talking like this. Now, granted, a lot of us have probably been through this type of situation before where we think everything we're doing is meaningless. Even some of us in ministry, I have heard people share over that, you know, I do all this, I do that, and nobody cares. Is it doing any good? And we shouldn't be thinking that because unlike Solomon, we know that our gifts are coming from the Lord. And it's human to feel discouraged. It's human sometimes to... Just think, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. The Lord reminds us, oh, I have that plan. At some point, he actually reminds Solomon that he had that plan. At one time, again, Solomon knew this. Another psalm, Psalm 72, you don't have to turn to that. We go to the end of that end of that psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It talks about the wonderful day of the Lord coming. But verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And Ecclesiastes is saying, I hated it all. And he and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. We don't need to despair. Because Solomon was crying out to us through the word of God and over the centuries, don't be a wise fool like I am. His conclusion, we go to the end of Ecclesiastes. Again, you don't have to turn there. Ecclesiastes 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. He came to that conclusion at the very end of this long, drawn out, and very revealing uh, set of his thoughts of his observations he came to the right conclusion in our knowledge of God's mercy and relationship this is something Solomon didn't have he had a special relationship but as believers we have even a more special relationship with the Lord we can stand before him in prayer we have dedicated our lives to him and he's telling us you may have that don't let it go don't suddenly start saying I have done this if you catch yourself boasting about what things you have done for the Lord shut up because that's where Solomon started going wrong he's saying I did this 
And the Lord's saying, don't. All this is the Lord's work. You have that special relationship. You have that special knowledge. Your sins are forgiven. You're destined for glory. Don't let pride take it from you. Don't come along and just ignore it because that can't happen to me. Solomon was visited twice by the Lord. It happened to him. It can happen to us if we keep our eyes off what the Lord wants us to do. And there are those of us here who know it. Some of us have backslid. We've heard testimony after testimony, uh, Mondays after Mondays along these lines. And by the grace of God, His mercy brings them back into the fold. And it's even better than before. Consequences? Yeah, they're still there. David had to deal with the consequences. Solomon did not leave a legacy like his father. Solomon's legacy was one of sin and corruption and the eventual exile of Israel and Judah. We, we studied this in, in Jeremiah. That was his legacy. He brought in all the pagan worship, and it just went on. Yeah, there were a few revivals here and there where people tried to turn the tide, but Solomon's legacy, for bad in this case, continued on. We cannot depend on Solomon for wisdom. We cannot depend on any human source for wisdom. Even though he wrote Proverbs, he wrote Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, that's not the source of wisdom. The ultimate source is the Lord. That's who we need to depend on. That's who we need to lean on. There's an old hymn, you know, leaning on the everlasting arms. That's what we are supposed to do. Not to lean on what we think is right, what we think is wise, but going to the Lord constantly and never taking our eyes off of Him. We need to avoid becoming what Solomon became, a wise fool. That is not our destiny. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you again. We thank you for your mercy that you loved us so much that even though we were sinners, you died for us, you gave your life, and you brought us back into fellowship with you. And all we had to do was say, yes, Lord, we want that. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. But it's so precious. And Lord, we know that as humans, we can stray. Constantly, there's those distractions, those things of the world that want us to go away from you, to look away from you, the enticements that can destroy us all. And Father, give us the strength. If we cannot do it in our own strength, then you give us the strength. You are our Lord and our God, and you are in charge of it all. We praise you, Father, and we thank you for the story that we've seen. A man's life who was not meaningless, who was not in vain, because we were able to learn from what he did from his mistakes. And we thank you for that, Father. And we ask you to bless the rest of this evening. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.